0: Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. You know, this song is not a bad summary of the book of Daniel that we have been going through. The book begins with Daniel and his friends as young boys taken away into Babylonian exile where they spend their lives waiting for the Lord. And they wait, and they wait, and they wonder, God, will you deliver us? We've talked about this a few times, but the question that hangs over the book of Daniel is, is God still king? Does God still reign? Wait for the Lord his day is near. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. This is what Daniel shows us and and what is proclaimed to us again and again throughout the visions in the book of Daniel. So today we are in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, you can open there if you'd like. Uh, and at this point, uh, Daniel is probably in his 80s. He's probably been in Babylon around 70 years or so. Um, he has been waiting for the Lord for a while. Um, one of the things that God's people do as they wait is return to the story of God and pray and hope of God. If you've been around church for any length of time, uh, two things you've probably been urged to do on a regular basis is read the Bible and pray, right? Read the Bible and pray. I have urged you to regularly read the Bible and pray, right? This is one of the primary ways that we learn to orient ourselves as God's people, is to to regularly immerse ourselves in God's story and respond to that story in prayer. And as we've been making our way through Daniel, we've seen that Daniel is a person of prayer. Daniel himself is a person of prayer in the most famous story of the whole book Daniel is sentenced to the lion's den precisely because of his habit of praying to God three times a day. In chapter nine, uh, as we look today, we will see a detailed look at one of Daniel's times of prayer. And what we see is that his words of prayer were a response to the words of scripture. Daniel himself was a read the Bible and pray kind of guy. So Daniel chapter 9 is essentially an invitation to read the Bible and pray with Daniel. It's a bit of a relief, to be honest, after the overwhelming visions that we've been seeing in chapters 7 and 8. There's mutant monsters and, uh, you know, many-horned livestock rampaging against one another. And so finding Daniel sitting down to read the Bible and pray is kind of a relief. But let's not get too comfortable, because mid-prayer, Daniel is interrupted with an answer that is as confusing as it is clarifying, which we'll read in just a moment. But as we come to read this chapter, I want to remind us to keep our focus on God and God's everlasting kingdom. Just as we have been tempted at times to turn the stories in the first half of the book of Daniel into merely inspirational examples to follow, we can also be tempted to turn the visions in the second half of the book into predictions to decode and calculate. We are tempted to read in these ways because it keeps us at the center right? Uh, what example should I follow? Uh, you know, let's predict what will happen to, to me, to us. But when we put God at the center of our reading, we see that these stories and visions are not merely inspiring examples or calculated predictions, but rather kingdom proclamations about who God is and what God is doing. So, Daniel chapter 9. So we have in other weeks, can I get a couple people who would be willing to read some of the text with me? Mary and Bill raised your hand again. So yeah, let's let's do it over here. Um, I'll I'll bring the mic and we'll get going.
1: Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last seventy years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes.
2: I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled, we've turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who have spoken your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we're covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, and all the countries where you've scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we've sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us to his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you.
0: Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem, just as it is written in the law of Moses. All this disaster has come on us. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him.
1: Now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this this day, we have sinned. We have done wrong, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts. Turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name.
2: While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I've now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place.
0: Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. And desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. As we continue, let us pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word and for these visions that Daniel has received and that have been passed on to us to reflect on, to meditate on, and to learn from. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture together this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in Daniel chapter 9, we have Daniel reading Scripture, responding in prayer, and then receiving an immediate response. Reading Scripture, responding in prayer, and receiving an answer. These are the three basic things that I want to reflect on and touch on during our time this morning. What Daniel read what Daniel prayed, and what Daniel heard in response, all right? So let's start with what Daniel read. In the opening verses of the chapter, we see Daniel reflecting on a passage of Scripture. But before his reading, verse 1 tells us when this happens. It says, in the first year of Darius. Uh, This reminds us of some of the stories earlier in the book of Daniel. Uh, some of these earlier chapters. In chapter five, we have Belshazzar, who is the last king of Babylon. He is the proud king who saw the handwriting on the wall, and that very night was put to death by Darius the Mede. And so the kingdom of the Medes and Persians came charging in like a two-horned ram, bringing Babylon to its end. With Babylon's demise, Daniel is reminded of something from Scripture. As verse 2 says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word the Lord had given to Jeremiah the prophet. I understood that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. What part of Jeremiah is Daniel referring to? Well, there's a couple of places in Jeremiah that mention the idea of 70 years of exile in Babylon. But most likely, um, this is referring to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. You know that verse that many Christians often have on their coffee cups Plaques, embroidered on all kinds of items, inscribed in cards, especially given to recent graduates. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Well, it turns out that Daniel also had that verse close at hand. I don't know whether he had it on a plaque in his, in his you know, room or something like that, if he drank his morning coffee out of one that said that. But Daniel is reflecting on this very same passage. And Daniel understands, I think, far more accurately, that this verse does not refer to the promise of a successful career after completing school, but rather the hope of being delivered from exile. That's what these words from Jeremiah 29 are talking about. The verse comes from a passage from Jeremiah that's described as a letter sent to the people in exile. So Daniel, as one of those people brought into exile, was a recipient of that letter. It made its way to him, and he took its words to heart. Here's what the letter says from Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Isn't this a great description of how Daniel lived? I mean, Daniel was carried off into Babylonian exile as a young boy. And rather than living a life of bitterness and anger, or of defiance and rebellion, Daniel devotes his life to the peace and prosperity of Babylon. He serves the very king who brought him into exile. Daniel is a picture of someone who loves and serves his enemies and all of his neighbors. He wasn't just waiting around to get out of Babylon, but rather he learned to love and serve the people and the place where he was, just as Jeremiah had told the exiles to. This is the call on God's people in exile we too would do well to take these words to heart. But then Jeremiah's letter continues. He goes on to say, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So Daniel lived his life in Babylon following Jeremiah's instructions to seek the peace and the prosperity of that place. But Daniel also remembers this part of the letter. About 70 years have passed since Jeremiah has been in Babylon. Darius the Mede has arrived and brought the kingdom of Babylon to its end. And so Daniel is wondering, as he reflects on this passage, is now the time that God is going to bring the exiles back from captivity? Has the time come? Right? Seventy years? Well, when that time came, Jeremiah's letter said, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. So what does Daniel do? He prays, right? He calls on God, he prays to God, and he trusts that God will listen. And so this leads us into the second part of the chapter. From what Daniel read to what Daniel prayed. Daniel's prayer is lengthy, unfolding over the course of about 15 verses. It begins in verse 4 like this. Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered in shame. And he continues from there. Now, there are at least two things about Daniel's prayer that immediately begin to challenge us. First, though Daniel is an individual, he consistently uses the word we as he prays. Did you notice that? Though Daniel is an individual, he consistently uses the word we as he prays. The second thing that challenges us is that though Daniel has at every point throughout the story been an incredible example of righteousness, his prayer consists thoroughly of the confession of sin. So Daniel is an individual person who is righteous. And yet his prayer is a communal prayer that confesses sin. And these two things, these two aspects of Daniel's prayer bump up against our cultural tendencies, the way that we have been formed to live and think and be today, right? We live in an individualistic culture, about me, myself, and I, right? We are individuals, and that's what we're taught from every moment in our culture. We live in an individualistic culture that is also obsessed with defending ourselves and our righteous reputations, right? But Daniel shows us that the people of God are meant to be a community community that is committed to confessing our sins. We live in a world of individualistic defense. But Daniel shows us to be a community of confession. This is going to take some relearning for us because we have not learned this. We've seen this clearly pop up in multiple times throughout our culture's history, but we saw this clearly just a few years ago when the question of racism in America was brought to center of the national conversation, right at the height of the pandemic as well. right There were marches, there were speeches. Many people compared it to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. But there's one thing that often happened, and still happens, when racism enters the conversation. There's this knee-jerk reaction to respond with individual defense rather than communal confession. Right? We're far more likely to say something like, I'm not racist, not me, rather than being willing to say, we have sinned and done wrong. We as a culture have sinned with centuries of race-based oppression. There's a good chance, even now, as I bring up this idea of racism, that many people in this room, many of us, feel a little uncomfortable. Right? Feel a little bit of that tension building up. Feel a little on edge. I feel it too, all right? That feeling is a result of being formed by an individualist, defense-based culture. Because we've been trained to immediately go, no, not me, to defend ourselves. This is how we've been formed. Rather than being formed by a culture of communal confession. Being willing to name wrong whenever wrong is done, even by us and those in our community. As God's people, when we look to Daniel here, we see that we are called not to defend ourselves, but to confess our sins. As one of the commentaries I read this week put it, what distinguishes us from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and confess it. What sets us apart from the world is not that we're less wicked, but we're willing to see our wickedness for what it is and confess it. It went on to say that the church is the only body on earth, the only community on earth that confesses sin. Where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer church. It's the only place in the world where we learn how to confess our sins, admit our wrongs. I want you to hear this. The people of God should be the most ready and willing people on earth to confess our sins. It should be strange for us to try to defend ourselves and our own righteousness. We should be the most prepared people on earth to say, I'm sorry. I repent. Those words should be familiar to our mouths, familiar to our hearts. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe. Repentance is our very first response to the reality of God's kingdom. If we're going to be people of God's kingdom, we must be so, so ready at every moment to confess our sins and to repent of our wrongs. Politicians defend themselves to get votes and keep their office. Business leaders defend themselves to get their profits and to keep their stakeholders. Defensiveness is the way of the world, but confession is the way of God's people. And we should be willing to confess sins that are not even ours, but sins that belong to the people that we're connected to, the communities that we're a part of. Daniel takes responsibility for all of Israel in his prayer. He doesn't say, God, your people have done wrong, but I've stuck it out here. He simply says, we have sinned. We have done wrong. And he leaves it at that. Can we learn to do this? Can we learn to not be individualistically defensive all the time, but instead ready to confess, ready to repent. Though Daniel was a righteous individual, he readily confessed the sins of his community. We should be willing to do the same. Why? Why should we be so willing and able to do this? Well, the answer is found at the end. Of Daniel's prayer. In verse 18, Daniel prays, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. We don't make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. We can be a people of confession who do not need to defend ourselves because God is a God of mercy. God is a God of mercy. God does not deal with us the way that the world deals with us. He lavishes us with love. He forgives us of our sins. Though God has disciplined his people in exile, his ultimate plan for them is to prosper them, not to harm them, to give them a future and a hope. The goal is not punishment, but restoration. This is God's mercy. He is a God of great mercy. And we see this mercy most clearly in Jesus. The only truly righteous individual to ever live and walk the face of this earth. And yet, when he was put on trial and sentenced to death, Jesus had every right to defend himself and his righteousness. He's the only one who could actually do it, truly. But he didn't. Instead, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was a righteous individual, but he died for the sins of the whole world. This is a picture of God's mercy the merciful God that we pray to confess to and follow as we follow Jesus and trust in God we have no need to defend ourselves rather like Daniel we can confess our sins and the sins of our people and trust in God's great mercy. So this is what Daniel does. He reads the Bible. He responds in prayer, confessing his sins and the sins of his people, trusting in God's great mercy. And then he receives an answer. He receives an immediate answer. Verse 21 says, While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight. Right? Gabriel is this angelic messenger who came to help Daniel understand the vision of the ram and the goat from chapter 8. He comes here to respond to Daniel's prayer about these 70 years. And we'll see this Gabriel messenger again in the Gospel of Luke as he comes to announce the incredible news of John the Baptist and Jesus being born. And I love what Gabriel says here. Look at verse 23. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. I love this little glimpse into how the heavenly realm responds to the prayers of God's people. When God's beloved children pray, it echoes and resounds throughout heaven. God really does hear. And more often than we're aware, God really does respond. And so the moment that Daniel began to pray, a word went out. I believe the same thing is true when we pray, especially when we pray with humility and with a willingness to confess our sins and trust God's mercy. So here's what's going on, right? Daniel has been reflecting on Jeremiah's letter about the 70 years. He's thinking that that time is just about up. And so he pours his heart out in prayer. And then Gabriel comes to offer a response. And Gabriel's response is meant to bring some clarity, but as we read, it's easy to read it as quite confusing, right? Gabriel's response is both discouraging, and encouraging. Gabriel's response is both disappointing and also, I believe, very reassuring. In verse 24, Gabriel says, Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Seventy sevens. And so uh, this is typically understood as as 70 times 7 years. 70 weeks of years is one way of describing it. What's going on here? All right, so you know that time whenever Peter asks Jesus about forgiveness... Do you remember that story uh, in Matthew chapter 18? Peter approached Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? And Jesus responds, I tell you, not as many as seven, but 70 times seven. Right? Uh, on the one hand, This is discouraging and frustrating, right? Wait, how many times do I need to forgive? Wait, what? 70 times 7, right? But on the other hand, this is very encouraging and reassuring because it shows us that forgiveness is so much bigger than we can imagine, right? Well, this is a bit like what's happening here between Daniel and Gabriel, right? Daniel has essentially prayed, Lord, how long until God's people are restored? Is it 70 years? And Gabriel comes to say, I tell you, not 70 years, but 70 times 70 years. What? Right? Seventy sevens. Well, at first, this is discouraging because while it means there's actually a lot more waiting, to be done but it's also very encouraging because it means that God's restoration is far bigger than Daniel could ever imagine it is not merely about restoring Jerusalem after 70 years but rather about restoring the world for all eternity that's the bigger picture that Gabriel's inviting Daniel into. Look at Gabriel's description of what God desires to accomplish with these 77s. He says that it is a time to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. These words paint a far bigger picture than the kingdom of Israel in Jerusalem. These words declare the kingdom of God in all the earth. These words describe a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And I think this is the point of Daniel chapter 9. Summed up in verse 24, we are part of a story that is far larger than we've dared to imagine. We think in terms of 70, and Gabriel comes to say, no, 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 70 times 7. That's a little closer to the mark. God is going to bring an end to sin. God is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's the declaration in verse 24. Now, the remaining three verses of the chapter are some of the most complex and cryptic in all of the Bible. Um, And I am not going to keep you here uh, as long as it would take to explain it all, because I, I can't actually. Um, right Gabriel breaks up the 77s into seven sevens, 62, sevens, and then one more seven. He describes anointed ones and rulers. He describes wars and desolations. There are countless interpretations and understandings of this and um, different ways of calculating all the numbers, mapping them onto history, so on and so forth. It is very easy to get lost in all the details. And, you know, if you want, we can dig into some of that during next week's conversation hour, right? Come with questions. I don't have answers. But for now, let me just point out an important theme That is, is woven through all of these confusing and wild details, right? In verse 25, Gabriel tells Daniel that Jerusalem will be rebuilt, but in times of trouble. It will be rebuilt, but in times of trouble. This reminds me a bit of Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds. You guys remember that? Right? The wheat of God's kingdom will grow but the weeds will grow up with it until the end comes. Good things will grow, but until the end, trouble will grow too. The kingdom of God is being established, but challenges still come our way. It will be rebuilt, but in times of trouble. And yet, verses 26 and 27 make it clear that these times of trouble will come to an end. War will continue until the end. Verse 27 describes an enemy who will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed, is poured out on him. This is the hope of Daniel chapter 9. We mustn't get stuck in all the calculated predictions, but rather respond to the kingdom proclamations. God is going to bring an end to sin. God is going to bring in an everlasting righteousness because God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. In the meantime, like Daniel, we should be a people who pray, confess our sins, trust in God's great mercy. May it be so. Amen.